This is Dennis Mundy. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg. Our podcast, Spirit Matters, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. Our guest today, Swami Sarva Priyananda. Uh, Swami has been appointed as minister and spiritual leader of the Vedanta Society of New York and assumed his duties in January 2017. Swami, thank you so very much to, for taking the time to come on with us today. Thank you for having me. Uh, Swami, we're always honored to uh, have a representative of your uh, illustrious lineage, which goes back to Sri Ramakrishna and Swami Vivekananda. And we want to talk about that and the uh, and Vedanta and many aspects of Vedanta. But why don't we begin, uh, to the extent you're comfortable, uh, telling us uh, our audience something about yourself and how you uh, something about your own spiritual background, how you came to your lineage and became a sannyasi. Um. Well, Phil. I'm a monk of the uh, Ramakrishna order, as you just said, and uh, the, the centers of the Ramakrishna order in the West are called the Vedanta societies. And yes, Swami Vivekananda was the founder here, um, and uh, Sri Ramakrishna was his guru, so we trace our lineage back to Sri Ramakrishna and through him back to very ancient lineages uh, uh, in Vedanta in India. Personally, um, you might say I partially grew into it, and we also believe in samskaras, tendencies uh, uh, inherited, if you will, from past lives. Uh, like I grew up in a family uh, where my parents and grandparents were devotees uh, of Sri Ramakrishna and closely associated with the Ramakrishna order as lay devotees. I grew up uh, in a small town on the eastern coast of India, uh, Bhuvaneshwar. And uh, with my parents, I used to visit the ashram, which is the monastery there, which was close to our house. I saw the monks there, and uh, I guess I belonged to the last generation before uh, t cable TV and the internet, and also I grew up reading lots of books. Uh, uh, there were lots of books of Swami Vivekananda and philosophy uh, at home uh, because my dad was interested. And so that was one of the things I grew up reading. And uh, well, there are lots of other kids who did that too. But then that's where the samskaras come in. Uh, I guess I had spiritual tendencies, if you will, uh, from a very early age. It was, I was fascinated. Uh, it seemed to me that if what these books were saying is true, that there is God and God can be experienced and that is the purpose of life, then what else could be as important? What else could be uh, uh, more important than this? And so I decided to uh, first to become a spiritual seeker. I mean, to me, it seemed that all important thing was to search for God. And uh, later I decided to become a monk. I think by the time I was a college student, I had made up my mind that I was going to become a monk. And so after I finished my studies, I went straight to the monastery and joined the order. That was in 1994. And I've been a monk ever since the last 25 years. Uh, Swami, I wanted to ask, when you made that decision and you moved in that direction, uh, did you uh, uh, initially, were you given uh, spiritual practices uh, that, it, that came along with becoming a monk? And uh, 
do you still practice those same spiritual technologies and, and meditations or whatever it is that uh, is, is part of your tradition? That is true. That's correct. Um, the central practice is um, a mantra, a repetition of a mantra and, uh, and meditation, which is a kind of a visualization of a deity. So in Hinduism, as you know, uh, God can be uh, understood in a wide variety of uh, forms and names. Uh, so the particular form and name which you practice is given to you by your guru or your spiritual master. And so I have a particular form, which is called the Ishta Devata, the chosen ideal, and a mantra associated with it. So morning and evening, ever since I took uh, the initiation, uh, I have been meditating morning and evening, which consists of repeating the mantra silently and visualizing um, the deity and concentrating as instructed by my guru. Um, Swami Bhuteshanandaji, who was the 12th president of the Ramakrishna order, I, I was fortunate enough to be granted initiation by him. Uh, but then once you become a monk, and that initiation is open to everybody. I mean, anybody who wants it can have it. Uh, and that's something that you practice throughout your life. But once you become a monk, there are uh, other spiritual disciplines which, uh, which start. Uh, broadly speaking, the four yogas. One is what I just mentioned, which is meditation, but uh, uh, which is called Raja Yoga. Uh, Bhakti Yoga, the path of devotion, where, uh, which includes worship, ritualistic worship, devotional singing, and so on. Um, then Karma Yoga, which is a big part of a monk's life in India, which is uh, doing good as works of service. So it, I, for example, worked in a school uh, teaching kids. But it could be a hospital, it could be any other kind of work, which is a service to humanity. Uh, our philosophy there is to see God in all human beings. It's something that comes from the Vedantic idea of the immanence of the divine. And then finally, there is uh, Jnana Yoga, the path of knowledge, which I guess I take to more naturally, which is a kind of philosophical investigation into the nature of reality. Who am I and what is this universe? So these are the practices that a monk does, mm -hmm. and this is what I've been doing all these 25 years. Very good. Thank you, Swami. Um, Swami, um, maybe you could give the listeners a kind of Vedanta 101 in, in this respect. Um, there are different kinds of Vedanta. That's right. your, lineage, your lineage is associated with Advaita Vedanta, or the non-dual, but there's also Dvaita and the others. Can you give us a, a short breakdown of the, of the Vedantas? Um, well, the uh, Vedanta is actually based on the Upanishads. If you want to know what are the root texts, the textual basis of the Vedanta, it would be these very ancient texts called the Upanishads, which are part of the Vedas, uh, which are the uh, the uh, oldest uh, uh, religious spiritual texts of the Hindus. Um, based on the Upanishads and secondarily on the Bhagavad Gita and a more arcane text called the Brahma Sutras, based on these texts, there are multiple schools of Vedanta, as you just said, the non-dualistic school or Advaita Vedanta, the qualified monastic school or the Vishishtadvaita, the dualistic school, the Dvaita Vedanta, and a, a number of other schools too. 
Now, I remember when I first came out to the West, uh, I was uh, cautioned when that to, when you use terms like non-dual and dual uh, in a predominantly Christian country, it means something very different to people here um, and um, than to people, say, in India. So, for example, dualism here would mean the difference between good and evil, good and evil, mm. the duality. Mm. Whereas uh, in Vedanta, uh, dualism and non-dualism are more ontological. That is to say, if God and the universe and us, individual sentient beings, if we are separate, independent entities, uh, separate entities, I wouldn't say independent, but separate entities, uh, then... This is called dualism. That means the difference between me and God, there's an absolute difference. God is a different entity and I am a different entity. Um, on the other hand, the qualified monists say that uh, the, we are God and the sentient beings and the uh, insentient universe. They are not separate realities. There is one divine reality, which is God, uh, the, uh, the more exact Sanskrit term would be Brahman. So there is one uh, all-comprehending reality, all-comprehensive reality called Brahman. And all of us, all sentient beings, as well as the insentient universe, we are parts or aspects of this this all-encompassing reality. So this would be called qualified monism, Vishishtadvaita. Qualified in the sense the the non-duality of Brahman is qualified by um, the existence of sentient beings and the insentient universe. A good way of understanding this is our own body. So my body is an organic uni- unity, but the parts are different from each other. For example, my uh, legs are not my hands and my tummy is not my head, but they are all parts of a unity. So in that way, we are all parts of a divine unity called God. And that would be a rough way of putting qualified monism. And then Advaita Vedanta, finally, uh, which is where there is only one reality, which is Brahman. And all this difference that we see, billions of sentient beings and this vast uh, insentient universe, all of these are just appearances of that one reality, like uh, like a a rope would be mistaken for a snake uh, in the classical example. And you are right. uh, Our tradition the Ramakrishna Vivekananda tradition uh, is primarily based on Advaita Vedanta, non-dual Vedanta, mm-hmm. for certain reasons. Um, but I must point out that we are based on non-dual Vedanta in a, a very inclusive sense. So, for example, we don't uh, we don't exclude uh, qualified monism or dualistic uh, approaches to Vedanta, or indeed any of the world religious traditions. We feel that they are the common spiritual heritage of humanity and we can all learn and be benefited by all these traditions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Dennis, can I follow up yeah, on go that? Ahead. Uh, Swami, did you mm-hmm. want to add something? I'm sorry. No, uh, uh, okay. go ahead, go ahead. Um, along those lines, um, uh, in, in, in the West, in America at least, um, the, the term Advaita has become uh, widely used and non-dual has become even more widely used. And there's often a, a conception in certain circles that um, non-duality is not compatible 
with devotional practices, what you would call bhakti. Um, can you address that, what I think is a misconception, and you obviously would as well? How does Advaita, or non-duality, um, connect with the traditions that, uh, of devotion? You're right. Uh, there is uh, no contradiction between bhakti and non-duality. In fact, uh, you don't have to take my word for it. If you look at classic uh, exemplars of non-duality, like Shankaracharya himself, the great mm -hmm. uh, philosopher commentator who lived about 1300 years ago, uh, down to our age with Swami Vivekananda, um, they were great bhaktas, devotees too. Um, so, and in our order, if you see, uh, we have a full program of devotional practices down to all the rituals and the music and prayers. So all of that is there. And if you go to the schools of classical Vedanta non-dualism in India, like the Shankara Matas, the, the monasteries established by Shankaracharya, even till today, you will find a full range of, uh, of ritualistic practices and devotional practices, which would seem very dualistic indeed. Mm. Now, the confusion is, uh, uh, is natural. If you say that I and God are one reality, then who am I worshipping and what am I worshipping? Um, I mean, how can I be one with God and yet worship God? So that is the source of the confusion. Well, it, it works this way. When Advaita Vedanta says, I am one with God or God and I are one reality, uh, it is so only at the level of the absolute. Here, the, the classical Advaita formulation of two levels of truth, an absolute level, Paramarthika, and a, a relative practical level called Vyavaharika, it comes in useful. So at the absolute level, there is one ultimate reality, which is Brahman, which I am, and which is also the God of religion or the qualified Brahman, which appears as God in Hinduism, as it can be uh, worshipped as Shiva or uh, Vishnu or the mother goddess, the Devi, or any of the avatars, incarnations, and so on. But and from the absolute point of view, we are one reality. But the moment that I find myself uh, that very absolute now appearing as a sentient individual being, then my relationship to the absolute becomes one of uh, of a jiva to Brahman, of an individual being to God. So, I mean, to put it practically, as a non-dualist, um, if I can walk and talk and eat and hold a job and drive a car, what prevents me from, from worshipping and praying and, uh, and singing songs and hymns? <laughs> absolutely nothing. <laughs> so uh, all these practices are taken as absolutely valid uh, and, and very useful indeed. The practices of bhakti are, are uh, very useful uh, for, the, uh, for the ultimate realization of the non-dual truth. Practices of meditation, practices of service. So karma, bhakti and meditation, the yoga, they're all uh, useful for the attainment of non-dual enlightenment, which of course in classical Vedanta comes, classical Advaita comes through knowledge alone. Um, notice that all of this is, uh, uh, this is not controversial from uh, the classical Advaita point of view. All the classical Advaitins would agree that, uh, that all the practices of religion are, are very good and useful. But I do see 
where this confusion is coming from, there is, in fact, what you might call a, a group of radical non-dualists who say that all of that is not necessary and one can just straight away realize that, that I am Brahman and the, and the job is done. Um, mm. In today's world, in, in especially in the United States um, and in Western Europe, there are these teachers who are now called um, the direct path teachers who trace their spiritual descent in some way from lineage, in some way from uh, Ramana Maharshi or Papaji and Nisargadatta. So yes, that is also there. That's, a, uh, that's also a valid path. But again, there, if you go back to the sources, whether it's Ramana Maharshi or Nisargadatta, you would find in their lives, there was actually a component of devotion. And they never uh, actually condemned devotional practices. No, they encouraged it, actually. They so, did. Yes, they did. So, so very good. Very, very Thank you for that. Uh, I, I'm curious, uh, uh, based upon what you were talking about and uh, the practicality of, of, of your teaching, uh, what your interaction is with the, the rest of the world. You're the leader of the Vedanta Society in New York, and I know that you have a physical facility there. I've been to your physical facility which was quite beautiful in Southern California. And you have uh, centers or temples <clears throat> uh, throughout uh, the world. Uh, if somebody were to go to, say, the Vedanta Society in New York, uh, what could they expect there? Can they participate in uh, spiritual practice? Can they learn spiritual practice? Do you go out and proselytize to communities or do you wait for people to come to you? Uh, what is your feeling of responsibility in regard to your interactions uh, with the world that, and society that you uh, that you dwell in? Well, uh, this Vedanta Society of New York, the one I am in right now, is interesting that way. Um, it is the oldest such society here. It was established by Swami Vivekananda himself in 1894, so we are fully 125 years old now. Um, uh, after after Swami Vivekananda came to the West to attend the World Parliament of Religions. And the idea was to um, open the door to the spiritual wisdom of the East, especially the Vedantic traditions. Uh, Swami Vivekananda was a pioneer in this respect. So the whole um, the range of gurus and yogis and lamas and all who have come over the last hundred years to the to the West and brought with them a wonderful range of traditions. It all followed from Vivekananda, really. And Phil has uh, shown that so wonderfully in his remarkable book, American Veda. Mm -hmm. So it, he traces the entire development of this movement here. Um, specifically, if you talk about this center or the Vedanta societies, what you would notice is these are teaching centers. So here we are the central aspect would be teaching of Vedanta. So we teach the Upanishads, the Bhagavad Gita. For example, we have classes on the Bhagavad Gita. We have classes on the Upanishads. So anybody is free to come here and join those classes, and they're all free of cost. Um, so that is the central thing. Uh, then there are instructions in meditation um, and up, up to actual initiation in the mantra tradition, which is given by uh, specially empowered swamis of, uh, of our order. So if one wants to actually take up a particular practice, one could attend the general lectures, the, the classes where we study texts, 
one could learn the meditation techniques. Um, then there are the devotional practices. Every day there are the evening vespers and the singing, um, the choir, and then silent meditation. There are these big uh, worships on special days. Now, our tradition uh, also is uh, centrally organized around Sri Ramakrishna. So Sri Ramakrishna's teachings, Swami Vivekananda's teachings, uh, they are also taught. So, for example, we have a class on uh, a book called The Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna, which is the conversations of Sri Ramakrishna translated in from, into English from Bengali. So it's a remarkable body of teachings. That's what we do, but we do not proselytize. For example, uh, if somewhere we have been here for 125 years, and if somebody comes to me and says, I want to become a Hindu, I wouldn't know the first thing to say, say to him. <laughs> so uh, I, I would say, you're welcome to, but it's not necessary. I mean, you can be a Christian or a Muslim or a Hindu or even an atheist. Uh, you could still benefit from the teachings of, uh, of, of Vedanta. It's not so important what kind of card-carrying member you are. Uh, though over the time, people do become uh, loyal followers and they become lifelong uh, associates with the Vedanta Society and members. So, and the Vedanta societies also have become publishing centers. So the books written by the Swamis and translations of uh, older scriptures. So these have been published by the Vedanta Society. Uh, I guess, yes, that's what we do. I have an outreach to different communities uh, in, in and around New York, New Jersey, for example. So I go in some places twice a month or once a month and I teach a text. Sometimes it's the Gita, sometimes it's uh, introductory texts on, uh, on, on Vedanta. Then whenever I can, if I'm called, I do go out to universities. People sometimes call me to uh, represent Hinduism in interfaith conferences. Interfaith is a big, big component of our activity because mm -hmm. Sri Ramakrishna was very ecumenical. Um, uh, he, he held that all religions are true and they're all paths to enlightenment. And so there's no need to quarrel between uh, quarrel among uh, religions. So we do try to promote interfaith harmony. And since coming to New York, we have successfully organized a couple of uh, interfaith events here. Very yeah. That, yeah. Uh, Swami, <laughs> I asked uh, one of uh, a devotee of your lineage, who's an admirer of yours, what she uh, would recommend I ask you on this podcast. And the answer was, so I'm going to do it. The answer was, yeah. uh, I should ask you what you think is the main problem with God-centered religions. <laughs> I'm sure uh, she must have, uh, is this a lady? Yes. Yeah, so she must have heard some of my talks. Yeah, that's yes. also another thing I would like to add. Uh, thanks to the new technology, uh, uh, the, the talks that I give have been uploaded on YouTube nowadays. And these are available uh, free all over the world. And it's remarkable how uh, so many people across the world become aware of, of Vedanta uh, through, uh, through the new technology of the Internet. Yes. Uh, now to the question, <laughs> God-centered religions. Actually, this thing uh, is, uh, it comes from the great sayings of the uh, Upanishads, which are called Mahavakyas, or profound sentences, which sum up the entire teaching of 
Vedanta, Advaita Vedanta, which is, for example, Tattvamasi, that thou art. So the, the central teaching of Advaita Vedanta is you are that ultimate reality, but you not the body-mind complex, but the you the, the consciousness uh, beyond the body-mind complex, which acts through the body-mind complex. So if we would really know ourselves as we are, we would know God. That's the central teaching of the Advaita Vedanta. Now, if you look closely at the sentence, that thou art, the word that stands for God, what would be God in theistic religions or in Advaita Vedanta, Saguna Brahman. And thou stands for the individual being, the jiva, us. So at the level of God and individual, obviously there's no identity. But Advaita Vedanta says there's a deeper level um, that uh, there is an absolute reality, existence, consciousness, bliss, which then appears as God and appears as us. So this statement, if you look at it closely, it, it encompasses the whole of spiritual life. Um, for example, one way of approaching spiritual life is, is God-centered. It is uh, it's something that's, uh, that makes sense in India because you have religions which are God-centered and religions which are not God-centered. Um, in the West, people, people get a little confused. How can you have a religion without God? But in India, it's quite obvious. You have traditions like the Buddhism and Jainism. And within uh, Hinduism, there are traditions like Sankhya, which are not God-centered, which are based on self-inquiry. Um, the Advaitic, this identity statement, that uh, the identity of the God and, and the individual, it shows that you can take either way. You can investigate God, you can, you can worship, surrender, love God and reach enlightenment. Or you can take up the question, who am I? And investigate your own existence and you can reach enlightenment. And Advaita Vedanta says in both ways you reach the same thing. Mm. Now, I still haven't answered your question. So to come to the <laughs> To, to the precise question is, what is the weakness of a God-centered religion? Well, quite obviously, the great weakness of God-centered religions is the existence of God. I mean, God itself <laughs> is the greatest weakness because uh, the problem is, does God exist? I mean, God is, is wonderful. God has all these extraordinary powers and capacities, and um, but only if God exists. And you'll notice in all the God-centered religions, Christianity or, or Islam or the, the uh, theistic traditions in Hinduism, like Vaishnavism and so on, a lot of effort is expended uh, to defend the existence of God. Does God exist? What are the proofs? Thomas Aquinas's five uh, proofs of the existence of God and so on and so forth. Um, so, and this is obviously open to attack. And it has been so for centuries. And right now, uh, this is under a tremendous attack. So, for example, the new atheists, Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris. So their whole attack is, uh, is on the God-centered traditions, if you will notice. And it's uh, and a variety of, uh, of pastors and uh, theologians and, uh, and rabbis are hard-pressed to defend God that uh, how do we prove that God exists? In contrast, the self-inquiry-based religions, they don't have this problem. Nobody seriously doubts that they themselves exist. 
I mean, none <laughs> of these traditions would try to prove that I exist. In fact, uh, what they try to do is to investigate my own existence and then come to the reality about my own existence, which is claimed, which solves the problem of, which solves the human predicament, gives liberation. So I say, uh, so that's it. The real problem with the God-centered religions is uh, doubt, doubt about the existence of God, the problem of faith. Very good. Yeah. So Thank Swami, you. Swami, you are, uh, in my opinion, incredibly articulate, and these are some very fine points, and uh, I hope this is part one of, of, of a number of interviews we can do with you. Uh, Phil, do you have any final uh, questions? I that do. Like to ask well, I have, I have 10 or 12, but <laughs> I... I will settle for 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 one, uh, Swami. Um, at, when Swami Vivekananda came in 1893, so more than a century ago, and he was the the first of the, as you said earlier, uh, a long list of illustrious teachers to come here, and, uh, and as I see it, bless. America with um, the wisdom of the Vedas. Um, if he were to come back now, having made the impact he did in 1893, what do you think his impression of the world of, of America, or even India now, what would he think? How would he react to it? What would he say? Would he say anything different from what he did in 1893? Great, great question, by the way. Yeah, a difficult question. Um, but, you know, the answer would be, would he say something different? I would say yes and no. One thing about Vivekananda was um, that he was prophetic in certain ways. He seemed to almost see the future of humanity centuries ahead. And things which he said have uh, remarkably come out to be true. I mean, he predicted the freedom of India in 50 years. He predicted, uh, uh, he said that Europe is sitting on a powder keg and sort of predicting the world wars. If you um, so, uh, and he was uh, remarkably astute in seeing the direction in which humanity would go. Um, uh, he, he, when he defended religion, he wasn't actually just trying to defend Vedanta or Hinduism, but he was he was as if it were defending religion against the onslaughts of skepticism, uh, modern materialism, or science-based uh, critique of religion, and so on. So I think if he were to come today and look around the world, of course, he'd be delighted. He loved uh, America. He loved... Uh, he loved humanity so, so to see what has changed and a lot has changed in the last hundred years. I think he would just be delighted. And yet he would not be very surprised. Uh, he, if you see his predictions and his writings, for example, about India, when he came to the United States 125 years ago and spoke glowingly about India, about the, he says, I see the future India rising and shining, far outshining. Uh, her glories of the past, it would have seemed crazy at that time uh, because uh, he himself said, here you see me coming out of a country that is being dead and dying, you would see, uh, you know, uh, colonized by the British and uh, starving and superstitious and uh, backward coming to the new world and proclaiming that India is something great. 
But it is true. A hundred years later, 125 years later, you see the difference in India today. So that's one thing. Um, he predicted the coming together of the East and West, which I think is so true. Um, mm -hmm. If you go to India, it looks more and more like um, you know, like like um, Manhattan. I mean, the difference. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the differences between, uh, say, New York or Los Angeles and Mumbai are not so much really. Only um, the cows. Only the cows. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, by the way, I just saw on the internet uh, that a cow is causing a. A traffic jam on one of the freeways right here, in, uh, just outside New York. I think. <laughs> there you so go. I think that way also we're coming closer. <laughs> right. so, um, so and science, I think that that's one thing that would have really delighted Vivekananda. Uh, he loved modern science when mm. he when he was here. He reached out Nikola Tesla. Yeah. Tesla would find his lectures fascinating. He attended Vivekananda's lectures in Chicago. He attended the lectures here in the Vedanta Society of New York, even after Vivekananda had left. And they carried on a correspondence. Uh, there are letters available from Tesla to Vivekananda and back and forth. Vivekananda encouraged the establishment of research institutes in India, uh, the Tata Institutes, and also uh, there are letters from Vivekananda and Tata back and forth where he encourages um, science and research in India. So all of those have taken uh, root and flowered and flourished. So um, I guess he would be comfortable. I mean, he was one of the first cosmopolitans of our world, you know, very comfortable in the East and the West. He would be delighted and comfortable, I think. But one more question, Dennis. Um, I, I do have to wrap it up in a minute, Phil, but go ahead. He'd be delighted to see his friend's name on a, an electric car. Would he be also delighted and surprised to see his face and image all over <laughs> so many institutions in India? Um, and one last question, would he be disappointed that we uh, still have so much sectarianism and uh, strife among the traditions? Well, yes and no. I think about that, you know. He talked about uh, the harmony of religions in the World Parliament of Religions uh, in his famous first talk to the World Parliament in 1893, which, by the way, uncannily was on 11th September. Yeah. This is incredible, oh. really, uh, on, on, on 9 by 11. Uh, and um, that is so evocative. When I see here uh, sitting in Manhattan looking at the New York skyline, which was changed by another 9 by 11, I think... Um, of the tragedy of sectarianism and violence based on religion and also the, the immense uh, relevance of Vivekananda and Ramakrishna to the 21st century world, that uh, we really need those teachings and they are a light to us today. Very good. Thank you so Thank much. You so much. And again, Thank you uh, so much. Thank you so much. We, we look pleasure. forward to having you back on. Uh, Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you Swami. I hope uh, to see you in New York when I'm there. Please do visit yes. both you and, and, and Dennis. Let I would me know love when to you're stop coming. by the Vedanta Society. Thank you. Thank you.